loving like talking with you guys and really learning about what life is like. My dream is to give the rights, give the freedom to the women of my country. How can I get married? It's everybody's right. Your family or your freedom. There's more to my story. There's more to our story. There's more to my story. Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Little, and you're listening to the More to Her Story podcast. You'll hear from journalists, thought leaders, social entrepreneurs, and of course, girls who are changing the game in their countries and communities. Thanks for choosing to be a part of the conversation, and I'll see you inside. Lori Adams is the CEO of Women for Women International, a leading global organization dedicated to working with women survivors of war and conflict. Prior to joining Women for Women, Lori served as the Director of Women's Rights for Oxfam in the United Kingdom. Lori is an incredible advocate for racial and gender equality, and she's devoted her life to eradicating all forms of injustice. Not only that, but she's an extremely passionate and kind human being, so I was glad to get the chance to interview her for more to her story. Enjoy this conversation. The question that I, I generally start all of my my interviews with is how has your faith in whatever way that you conceptualize the word faith um, shaped who you are and what you do in the world? That's a, that's a fantastic question. I'm glad you asked everybody. Um, I did actually listen to a couple of your podcasts and it was fascinating to hear people's answers. And two things came up for me. One, because I listened to your podcast about purity and um, you know, in this COVID period where Americans are taking such an individualistic approach, I've been reflecting a lot about how the US was colonized by Puritans who left the UK because they wanted even more freedom. And so there was this religious zealot freedom, independence, um, I need to be able to do what I want that I in some ways have some respect for, but I'm from New England and my grandfather was a Protestant minister. and listening to your purity podcast helped me realize that the work of getting rid of all of that Puritan, you're not allowed to have pleasure, you have to work all the time. In our case, money is bad, luxury is bad, rest is bad, you know. Um, so my family wasn't evangelical, but my mother grew up with this whole have to be in service all the time and, you know, any form of um, relaxation or wealth is evil. And then that sort of connects to my left politics in which I think it's completely unfair that some people have so much money than others, but it's left me in this kind of really guilty space, which I don't think is a healthy place to do philanthropy or service work from. So that's one reflection. The other is I've been really, my, my own faith, my own spiritual practice is much more eclectic and it is perhaps more linked to my father and that is get into the mountains. If I ever need to heal, I head for the mountains. Hiking, and this year I've discovered um, solo hiking. Hiking in mountains, you know, brings me closest to what I consider my version of God is community and nature. And so, um, and I've, I, my, my practice besides getting to the mountains is Tai Chi, which comes from China, you know, yoga, which comes from India, um, and uh, right now I've just started a, a martial arts practice, which also comes from China. So a very Eastern influenced meditative body movement practice. And, and that's, what, that's what grounds me. Um, but still trying to heal from some of the influences of organized religion, which I, you know, 
all forms of institutions, not just religion. I, you know, I studied Ivan Illich in college and it really shaped my mind. All forms of institutions are where people try to exert power. And so um, organized religion has, I think, played a very problematic role in the world, even as it's provided a place of community for people to gather, which I think is important. So the first thing that you mentioned about, you know, it's not ideal um, to operate from a stance of or a place of like guilt um, when you do philanthropy work. How have you managed to, to overcome that? I think it's, you know, I think accountability is important. Um, and for me, accountability and guilt are different. So I grew up with a black Korean sister and I had a front row seat on racism. Mm. Um, and so I've always felt really guilty as a white person with all my entitlements. Mm. And that's inspired a, a lot of my work. Um, I also, I grew up, um, I'm a third party national like you, a, th a third party, a, a third nation kid, born in Korea, raised in Germany and Italy, spent all my adult life mostly in Africa. And so I also had a front row seat on the impact of the US in the world, both the positive vision, but also the negative uh, ways in which the US exerts power. And so I also had a lot of guilt around being an American. So for example, in my first marriage, which was to a black identified South African, um, like all you had to do was do the white imperialist guilt thing and i was like whatever you say hmm. which was not a healthy place to be right and so um but over the last 20 or 30 years i'm like okay being guilty doesn't help anybody it does not help you know that marianne williamson quote about you need to shine like your, your light shines light on others so to kind of like cower in the background and go i'm so sorry i can't take up any space and like I don't don't give me any power because as a white American we have enough that wasn't actually helping anybody and so what what is important is to be accountable to say yes I am entitled and it comes with enormous amounts of privilege mm -hmm. and I have a responsibility to constantly look at that and never think that's because of me it's not because I'm so brilliant that I'm now in this position why did I get into an Ivy League school you know because of my family's history and not because of I'm better than anybody else or whatever. And so to constantly um, examine your privilege and break it down and be inclusive around power. So that's accountability. Guilt doesn't serve anybody. So you, you've spent the, the more significant part of your life fighting for and advancing women's rights around the world. Um, can you trace some of your passion and devotion um, for women's rights and, and combating sexual violence? Um, where, where, where does that stem from? It's interesting because I, I came to doing full-time women's rights work only about 10 years ago. So I started um, working more on, I, I, I got politicized through the anti-apartheid movement and through the Central America Solidarity Movement. Mm -hmm. So my first few decades of work was more around class and race. Um, but, you know, I, one of the jobs I had at ActionAid was for nine years, head of monitoring and evaluation of all this work. And everywhere I went, women coming together hmm. made the best changes. It was the most consistent indicator of positive change. Like you could try to change trade policies, you could do all kinds, but women together, like that was the greatest leap. Hmm. And so that was one thing I was like, oh, I wanna work on women's rights because it's the greatest path. And also everywhere I lived, whether it was, you know, where I grew up in Korea and Italy and Germany, or whether it was Senegal, Kenya and South Africa, or whether it was the other countries I visited, patriarchy was a consistent like always and creative in multiple different forms right but 
And it was a consistent thing that was keeping down the potential of half the population. So I came to it that way. And then the other way I came to it, and Zainab Saldi, the founder of Women for Women's work on this really helped me, is like, often activists have their own pain and hurt, mm. but they act on other issues. And that's a bit of a disjuncture. And so I, I recognize that I need, it's not a bad thing to work on your quote unquote own issue before my white guilt was like, well, I shouldn't work on gender issues. I should work on class and race, but actually I'm a survivor. Mm. Um, and if I go around and tell women for women graduates and participants to share their stories mm -hmm. of abuse and rape, and I don't tell my own, yeah. you know, Zainab has a beautiful passage around that. It's so easy to tell other people's stories. Yeah. Um, and it's so hard to tell your own. And so during the Me Too movement on International Women's Day, I stood up for the first time and, and admitted that, you know, admitted even that word that I still use, admitted, why should I have to admit, tell, you know, that I had been raped when I was in my 20s. And the fact that I still felt shame around that, and here I am this, you know, I mean, I find, I think I'm a pretty put together, confident person at this stage in my 50s, you know, that's the advantage of being in your 50s, you know. And it's still to feel shame around something that somebody else did to me decades ago, even despite all of my, you know, consciousness work and power work and, you know, participation in the women's rights movement. That's how deep it is, you know. And so that's the other reason. It's like work on the issues that you have personal experience of and know about and can speak to um, isn't the only thing you should do. You know, being an ally and being in solidarity is absolutely important. But that was my route to women's rights is um, it works, it's powerful, it makes changes for everybody, it is inclusive of men and women, and um, you know, it makes a huge difference. And I know something personally about it um, as well. Yeah. My mom was a fem, you know, was a feminist, so that was also an influence. I mean, I grew up that, you know, you know, free to be you and me. I don't, you know, this is a 70s thing from Ms. Magazine, but like literally singing free to be you and me from <clears throat> Ms. Magazine was my influence. But as a model, my mom was very much um, subjugated to my dad. And so it, it, that's the other contradictory thing is what you're told. You can be anything you want to be, but what you watch is it's always the man who takes the decisions, who gets to debrief on his work at night, you know, where we moved to was always because of dad's job. Um, so those contradictions, um, you know, were, were a big part of what I needed to get over and what I think all of us need to get over. Yeah, it's, it is crazy, you know, what we're, what we're taught as kids, you know, how that affects us when we're adults and, and what we don't like the subconscious things. You know, what was that for you? Have you discovered something in you where you're like, wow, you know, that belief I have has really kept me down. It was definitely, um, over a period of time, it wasn't just like some, you know, light bulb moment, um, which I think it is for most people. It's over a span of years or, um, but I think it was when I initially went to Jordan um, back in 2018 and spent some months um, interviewing refugee girls and, and hearing about their lives. And then, um, you know, kind of, and, and then traveling, I was in Kenya for a bit and I was in Palestine and um, interviewing young women and, and realizing that similar to you, that patriarchy spans the entire world you know no country no culture is exempt um and especially yeah. you know not, not ours either but you know it's um i think that that was what catalyzed the work that yeah. we so your your feminist work was grounded in south africa for for over a decade for 12 years 
Um, and you, you mentioned that you were also stationed in Senegal and Kenya, um, and you've traveled extensively throughout the African continent working with women. Um, so do you mind speaking about how that period of your life shaped who yeah. you are and, and the work that you do today? It was such it was such an honor and a privilege, really. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, you went to South Africa to help. I'm like, no, I didn't. I went to South Africa the minute Mandela was released to learn from the movement, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because it was one of the most powerful contemporary movements, you know, in the 80s. And that's exactly what I got to do. And so, you know, learning from South Africans about how to analyze power and systems and systems change and long-term struggle, you know, that was an important part. But more generally across Africa, you know, it's much less individualistic than the U.S. And so, you know, Ubuntu, which is a phrase that, you know, is variously um, interpreted, but, you know, basically we are through, we are, we are who we are through others. It's like the opposite of that Puritan individualism. And so it was a really important influence for me. And I have up on my refrigerator a, um, a saying, you know, if you want to go quick, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so I mean, and I do think it took like over a decade in Africa to get that into my being away from the very US individualistic thing that is just, you know, embedded in us, especially in New England, I think. Um, So that was a really important part, the part about community um, and supporting each other. And um, that was an important part. But the other, the other thing I learned was so the struggle takes different forms. So one of my sayings at Women for Women is, you know, people say, how can you work in Afghanistan? It's like, well, you know, still now under the Taliban. And it's like, because the approach we take is the work is embedded in the culture and you mm-hmm. you bend it and you push it, but you don't break it because mm-hmm. you, you understand through Ubuntu or through working in community that women around the world, people around the world are reliant on the community. And so you can't just expect a woman in Afghanistan or in many of the countries in Africa to be like, okay, I've now found myself, I'm going to go off and pursue my individual rights because she's reliant on an entire community and economically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And so you need to find a way to transform that society, not at the pace it can take with the leadership of local women, right? Because there are fabulous feminists in Afghanistan. There are fabulous feminists in Senegal. And so you, ha- everywhere. So you have to take their leadership and their guidance and, and go and, and use the force. So, so, you know, a personal example, when I was <clears throat> going through problems in my marriage, um, I was living in Senegal, but it was actually a group, a group of feminist friends from all over Africa. I think one was Zimbabwean, one was Kenyan. And they're like, Lori, girl, here in Africa is what we do. When you're in, you know, these were trade advocates, many of them. I, at the time I was doing trade advocacy um, and they had just come back from Cancun and they were like, look, our power as trade negotiators threatens our husbands who are also usually powerful ministers in this particular case. This is what we do. If it becomes impossible, we get them a job. We help them get a job in a different country. We don't divorce. <laughs> we just find it because that doesn't work for our culture. Um, and I'm not generalizing, Africa does not have one culture, let me be very clear, but this was just advice that was given to me by some women about how they navigate the challenges of patriarchy in their context, which is to keep the family intact um, and then to try to navigate independent space and power within it. Now, several of those women are now divorced and you know, so that's, I'm not, or, into, or single, so I'm not saying uh, anything about any generalizations, but what I guess I learned is, 
there are many different, what's that terrible saying? Skin a cat, different ways to skin, that's terrible. But there are very many different strategies to bring about change. And how you do advocacy in Senegal is completely different perhaps than how you do it in you know, France. And so, you know, when I was working for Oxfam and we were doing Pan-African advocacy work, you're like, no, we are not going to follow some strategy that people came up with in Oxford with influence of somebody from Belgium, because that's not how you get change to happen in Senegal. Um, so that's what I learned. Um, the power of community and belonging and the need to take strategies that work in the local context that may look very different from what works somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I was a third culture kid, as you as you mentioned, but um, you know, did spend a lot of my life in individualistic societies and, you know, America being like the ep epitome of individualism. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting when you, when you live or work in other cultures and you, you see the importance of community and, and the, the downsides to that as well, how men so often control women, um, and how women like the like honor killings great example you know how the honor of a woman is inherently of a man i'm sorry is inherently tied to yes. the actions of their women you know yeah but i think i mean the other thing i mean one of my one of my um so two things on that one two little stories one one you you know by living in other cultures you get a chance to see that the the air you breathe or the water you're in, like you get to see it, right? Before it's invisible to you. So things that you think aren't the norm or, or, or just human are not. So a stupid little example is a Kenyan friend of mine moved to the UK and she's like, call me up, she's like, Lori, this is crazy. You guys label your food when you share houses? I mean, that, for her, that was the most outrageous thing. Like, how can you live with somebody and label food? Like, it is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Or, and the one that's more often quoted is, and I, is, you put your people in old folks' homes? Like, how could you possibly do that? So I have two adult sons and I'm like, kids, you're living in North America right now, but remember you're African <laughs> you know? because I don't have a pension. So you are my pension, right? Um, um, so that, that's, one, that's one thing. But the other thing is um, I remember I was in an African feminist forum meeting in South Africa and um, one of the women said, oh, please don't tell me that this is our culture. Like cell phones are not our culture and all of you men are out there very happily getting cell phones. So like culture changes and it's alive and moves all the time. Yeah. And so this notion that feminism is a Western import is nonsense. You know, Beijing feminists were more from the global South than from the West quote unquote West. And so A, that's completely false. There have been feminists across societies. Um, it's just that white feminism has dominated like written literature, etc. So that's a huge fallacy. And secondly, the notion that culture is static is also just bullshit, you know, frankly. And so, um, you know, that, that was the other, like, so when I say push the, bulk, the boundaries of cultures, don't break them, I don't mean don't be radical, I mean, be appropriate to context. And right. that doesn't mean, and that means finding out from local women, what is the way the culture is evolving and changing? What's the best way to shift it? It doesn't mean accepting something like an honor killing or, you right. know, other nonsense in our culture, fetishization of bodies in a certain form, um, you know, don't accept that. Yeah, culture is not static, such a good point. It's not, it's not a point that's made enough either. Um, so to that point of, of working on the ground with, with women, that, that is what Women for Women 
does, which is the organization that you run. Um, and it's, you know, one of the leading NGOs, for those who don't know, um, serving over 15,000 women um, in conflict and war zones. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we, um, we're really proud. A couple of years ago, we hit the half a million um, mark, um, served over half a million women with a really wow. intensive- Way off the mark, wow. No, no, 15,000 a year new enrollments is what we're managing okay. to do right now during COVID times, um, because it's a bit more intensive. But um, I, I think the importance of it for me is it's an intensive investment. It's not you know, like sometimes we say, oh, we reached a million people with this campaign in Oxfam, but this one is like a, a, you know, an engagement that is weekly direct investment. And, and that's what it really takes to change people's self-perception and social norms and economic realities. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a smaller NGO than other ones I've worked for, but I, but I came to it because I, I think it's just phenomenal that it's, locally led and it's really grounded and meets women where they're at and it takes this holistic we take this holistic approach um, that goes economic social all the various forms of power that women need in order to fulfill their own potential and and it's in a solidarity model where people in um people um sister another sister um we, we've called it sponsorship, but I think it's, I think of it as a sisterhood program, a solidarity program where, where you can invest in a specific woman and, um, and, and um, know that your contribution is making a powerful difference because by the end of the program, you know, she's doubled her economic income, she's increased her confidence. So, so yeah, um, uh, a relatively small NGO compared to the Oxfam's or ActionAids of the world where I used to work, but a really powerful model that I that I hope uh, really appreciate getting to let other people know about it because it I think it really works. I think so too. Um, and you know when I think about a great leader, um, someone who brings intersectional feminism to the fore of the agenda, who isn't afraid to push boundaries, who leads with not only conviction and integrity but also with with love. Um, I think about you, and, oh. and we don't know each other that well yet. But I mean, I have been watching from afar for several months. And you know you can tell a good leader when you see one. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, you're, you. you're out on the front lines, you're visiting and meeting with women um, from villages to cities and um, around the world, really getting a glimpse of what their lives are like and where you can be most of service. And I, I really admire that. So, so my question to you, Laurie, is what does it mean to be a great leader, um, particularly a feminist leader, someone who brings feminism and equality into the professional stratosphere and uses yeah. it almost like a compass to to direct their yeah. work um so i actually um have in my notebook a um set of 10 feminist principles that we developed at action aid and and the reason i have them is that as you said it's like a compass hmm. and um creating the world that doesn't exist is difficult and so even if you've been doing this work for decades you need to remind yourself of like, what is it that I'm trying to do? Because you're going up against powerful forces and it's challenging. So, you know, the ActionAid Feminist Principles, which you can find on their website, there's 10 of them. But the, for me, it comes down to really looking at breaking down, analyzing and using power in appropriate ways. What I learned most from the anti-apartheid movement and from feminists, which when you bring it into the development world, everybody thinks you're brilliant, but actually, you know, the development or humanitarian sectors are slightly different than the advocacy sectors, the ability to understand how power works, 
to break it down into these are social norms, these are institutions, these are individuals, these are the kinds of power that I hold, and these are the kinds of power that I exert, and to be highly aware of privilege and entitlement, and to be inclusive, and to share, and to break down biases, all of that is one really important part. Another really important part, and this is the part that I'm really embracing and working on more now, coming out of that Puritan work ethic type toxicity, is care and self-love and humanity and compassion. So actually, I did this exercise on values. You know, what are your core values? And it used to be make a difference, achieve, get stuff done, you know, use your potential to the fullest to bring about change. <clears throat> and now I'm a little bit more like, um, be good to people, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I think I think I read, a, it was in a Rumi quote this morning even, like, you know, when I was young, I thought I needed to change the world. And now that I'm older, I realize I need to change myself. And I, yeah. I, I'm not full on Gandhi in that sense. Like I believe we need to change the world. So I'm fully focused on changing the world. My goal in life is to try to leave the world a better place than when I started and to use all of my entitlement and privilege and gifts to that end. That's still the case. But I'm, and maybe this is Ubuntu coming in stronger, but the people, the people along the way and how you treat each other the path so I don't believe in by any means necessary anymore like no not by any means necessary the the love is and compassion and empathy and connection are fundamental to feminism and then you know courage because yeah. you've you've got to go up against systems and you will you know whether it's for you because you're really active on social media whether it's haters coming at you or whether it's um you know less less um, in my case less affirmation from powers that be because i'm pushing boundaries um you you need courage um and strength but you also need support to continually go up against trying to be a different kind of leader and it doesn't one of the hardest things is you're working with people who have been taught that we're in a binary hierarchical world yeah and so when you're trying to be non-hierarchical sometimes it's read as weakness. And sometimes that can actually make it really hard to get things done. And when you're trying to be non-binary, sometimes people can read that as lack of clarity. And so trying to be non-binary and trying to be non-hierarchical is really challenging because even my own colleagues, um, you know, like I remember like working with, in Southern Africa, working with a Malawi team and they've just been, their colonial education system, it just taught them such a hierarchical way of being. And so when you try to break down power and use it differently, it's really confusing for people. And I'm not signaling out Malawi, it happens here in the United States with my colleagues here, it happens everywhere. So that's the challenge. Um, so you really need a compass, you really need a community. You, you need to go back to those principles and remind yourself why you're doing it because it's not easy, it really isn't. I, I recently read this, quote by this brilliant philosopher and, and human being Krista Tippett do you know Krista Tippett she hosts mm -hmm. on being the podcast I think you'd really like um and she, it down now. this quote has been stuck with me for the past several days she says I want to insist on complexity mm. and yeah. what, what you just said kind of you know resonated yeah. with that that we, yes. we need to try to live in a non-binary world yes. um, and in this era of oversimplification and dehumanization, I think that a lot of us have lost the art of complexity. We've lost the art of nuance, of you know, seeing 
human beings as what they are, which is, you know, intricate, complicated creatures. Um, and, you know, we've replaced them with, with watered down versions of our limited perceptions and um, our binaries. So, you know, actually, as, as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking, I want to ask Lori about this. What does she think about this idea of insisting on complexity? Um, I would love Absolutely. to get your in light of the work that you do to try to, to bring more nuance and multi-dimensional views of women to the world. Um, yeah. No, I absolutely, that resonates with me so much. Um, I absolutely agree. And in the development world in particular, this is a massive challenge. So <clears throat> back when I was working at ActionAid, we used to um, run trainings in complexity theory <clears throat> because, um, because if you're trying to do systems change, right, you have to understand like where it's the nodal point, what's the, in this complex system, where's the point that, that you can bring about some change given all of the, the difficulty. So that, and, but funders of our work are very linear. I don't know if you've ever come across a logical framework, but like you literally, when you wanna get funding for the kind of work we do, you're supposed to go, we are gonna do these things and it's gonna to lead to this specific outcome and we're gonna guarantee it. And change is not linear, it's organic. And change happens in every place without development intervention. It's an ongoing process. So this, the development sector notion that the EU or the UK government or the US government has that, that here's this poverty and lack of rights over here in this other place. And somebody here is going to come up with an intervention which is going to lead to this outcome as if we're in some kind of lab or you know it's insane human beings are so complex and 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 so you have to um be flexible and responsive and go with opportunities as they come up and so i mean i think this is now much more commonly known even the business sector is like you know having a three-year plan is a joke having a one-year plan is a joke you know you should you should be um doing what we call real-time strategy at Women for Women. Like, yes, you set out, you have to set out the vision of where you wanna be, but then you have to like pivot and grab opportunities. And, you know, I mean, it's a joke to eat. Like everything we planned in the last two years was thrown out the window because of COVID. You know, <laughs> I feel grateful in fact that we, we were supposed to have our back to office plans ready for January. And frankly, we just weren't ready. And now it's like, well, good because we wouldn't have been able to do it anyways, you know? So, um, so complexity is really important and the importance of it is um, to not fool yourself that you know what's going to happen and to be humble about it and to constantly be learning and adapting. Um, yeah, and that's, that's also really difficult for people because we, we want certainty, we need security. We like the idea that we know what's gonna happen. We, we like the idea that A leads to B leads to C and in the kind of complex work we're doing of changing power, um, it doesn't doesn't work like that. The other the other thing I'll say I learned something from um, uh, my former um, boss at ActionAid, Ramesh Singh, who now actually is working at Women for Women for us for a while, coming to help us out. Is um, and this is often we say something is complex when actually it's complicated, hmm. and it's really important to distinguish between what is simple, what's complicated, and what's complex because complicated things with lots of moving parts, you can still systematically change. And, and to make things simpler for people, the things that are simple are complicated. Let's routinize those. Let's set rules for those. Let's be predictable about those things. Um, you know, 
to the point that some business leaders you've heard, like they wear the same thing every, every day so that they don't have to make choices so that you can keep your brain power and your energy for the complex stuff where you really do have to be on your feet and adaptive and changing all the time. So let's try and when we, as we build organizations or do campaigns to identify what is simple or what is complicated and actually do routinize those yeah. so that you can have more energy for the complex because that's where the a lot of the real change happens. Yeah, and, and not to put you know people in boxes and and dehumanize them, you know? Um, yeah. That's something that I feel like our culture particularly has been doing in in recent years um, and months. And it's, I think that that does strip people of their of their humanity and their complexity, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, we, we've talked about how much, um, like even development people are instrumentalizing Afghan women. Like, oh, America supposedly went to war in Afghanistan for Afghan women. No, the US did not go to war in Afghanistan for Afghan right. women. Um, and then like, so, and the, to instrumentalize Afghan women as these victims who either the Taliban or ISIS-K or the US are trying to yeah. change. It's just, as you say, a gross simplification. Something, something nice that I um, heard in a meditation this week, which I'd never heard before is, um, your past selves and your future selves. And that sort of speaks a little bit to what you're saying because to acknowledge that we as individuals even are complex beings and that we change and that yes, there's a constancy of who we are but actually our past self and our future self is not our current self. So even us, we're complex beings. And um, to recognize how we're evolving um, and to recognize other people evolve like that is, is important. Totally. So. Can we transition to Afghanistan? Yeah. For, for those who don't know, um, you know the Taliban, uh, which is an, an Islamist fundamentalist group, uh, swept through swept through Afghanistan um, in August. Um, they captured city after city. Um, they barred girls from their education, and um, they eventually, um, and without so much as a gunshot, as you know, Lori, um, took Kabul, the capital city. Um, and are now effectively ruling the country. So needless to say, you know, the future for Afghan women and girls looks uncertain and bleak right now. Um, and I, I know Women for Women has been working tirelessly on the ground um, for quite some time. Um, so I'm wondering, Lori, what, what can you tell listeners about what's taken place in Afghanistan according to, to reports that you're seeing and, and, um, and what can people do to help? I mean, I, I've, I'm sure people have reached out to you many, many, many times over the course of the past few months, just wondering what they can do because it feels a bit yeah. helpless right now. No, I just, um, <clears throat> no, and, and Sarah, thank you very much for your work because the reason I came across you first is that you are sharing such powerful stories directly from women on the ground in Afghanistan throughout the whole takeover and since. And so that kind of direct testimony is really important because I don't want to say what Afghan women's experiences are. I want to hear from, from them and, and your storytelling has allowed that. Mm -hmm. The reality for us, we have, um, in August, we had 88 staff in Afghanistan. We've been working there for over a decade. Um, <clears throat> and we, we actually had already worked in some areas which were already under Taliban control because we worked in four and five different provinces. Um, and so um, one, of the, one of the things that happened was our own staff, I mean, working for a women's rights organization that, has an office in the US, 
our own staff were, were, were very scared about what it meant for them. And on the one hand, because we do all have local leadership, and for example, I, I've only been to Afghanistan once for Women for Women because I've recognized way before the Taliban were in control that to go as a white American just exposes our staff to risk. Like there was no reason for me to be there as much as I would love to be there because when people are walking around with a white American woman, it's like that associates them with, with um, a power that's always been controversial in Afghanistan, not just um, recently. And so, um, <clears throat> So our staff wanted to get out and um, we spent an enormous amount of time um, applying for our staff to every, to the US government for P2 visas, to the German government, to um, the UK government. And you know, much to the shame, because we get most of our funding in the US, much to the shame of the US government, it's the UK government that got visas for our 10 most at-risk staff, mm. uh, for our four, actually, sorry, our four most at-risk staff and their families. And we got over 30 people out um, to the UK. Um, and then it's the German um, government that got visas for 10 more staff, but those staff are not gone yet. So on the one hand, there has been like, let's keep our people safe. But on the other hand, the vast majority of women in Afghanistan obviously can't leave Afghanistan. And so the biggest priority has been to continue work. Yeah. And so um, even as some people leave, we've been hiring other people. We've been in extensive negotiations to continue our work. Um, and just this week, we got this mixed news. I mean, it's, it's really hard to celebrate. On the one hand, we got permission officially um, to continue our work from the Taliban. So we're now authorized by the Taliban. And that's something that allows us to do more. We've been continuing working throughout this time, um, providing psychosocial help. And we've been procuring vegetable garden kits and poultry so that we can distribute it to women. And we're figuring out how to get smartphones in the hands of women so that we can do cash transfers. And, you know, so, We've been continuing our efforts to provide support to the um, tens of thousands of women who we're in touch with in Afghanistan. Um, but at the same time, to really do the most, we need to be officially authorized um, to work. And the, the Taliban had taken over one of our offices, and so all of that negotiation. So we got the permission. Huh? Is it difficult to get permission from the Taliban? Well, we only got it this week, and we started the process then. So it Yes, um, but the, the side that makes you go like, that's hard to celebrate is the first thing we have to do to go back to our offices is refit them because men and women have to work in separate places. Men and women are not allowed to work together. And so the realities of the new reality, and then that's our operational reality. We can still, thank God, you know, employ um, women and still do our work. And that's really, really important. Because um, as I say, you have to work within the boundaries and, and push them to the degree you can. And we're doing our work in a humanitarian way. Because remember right now that food crisis, actual starvation, remember, like, like we don't imagine this. It's snowing in Afghanistan this weekend. Snow, you just don't famine, about, yeah. snow, famine, you know, like actual, like, how are we going to live without heat and food issues, right? So, um, so we continue to in some places we're able to even bring women together, but mostly we're working um, remotely. And that's a combination of, of COVID and the Taliban. But so what you can do is you can do things like listen to Sarah's um, podcast and amplify them and share them and share the stories of Afghan women, share the, you know, Norjahan Akbar is one of our, um, used to work at Women for Women and um, she's been doing some phenomenal work 
um, helping um, writers and journalists. Um, so, you know, follow Afghan activists and amplify their work and their stories. Um, but also, you know, invest in, you know, whether it's at Women for Women um, through sistering with women in our program or investing, invest in women who are in Afghanistan because um, they're the ones that have to bring about the change. They're the ones, I mean, we need a, a safe, democratic, prosperous Afghanistan for all of us. We need it for Afghan women, but we also need it for all of us. And that's gonna happen through Afghan women. And so invest in Afghan women, and you can do that at Women for Women at our website, um, and you can, or you can do it with local Afghan organizations. Um, and um, that's one of the things we do. We do partner with, with Afghan organizations as well. That's my passionate appeal to not forget, because, you know, nothing's changed since September when all of us were worried about this. Um, it's not in the news anymore. Um, but the conditions are, are worse and they're dire and we can make a difference. You can make a phenomenal difference. Um, so don't think you can't make a difference, you can. Um, despair doesn't help any, despair is just as bad as guilt. It's like, um, and Samantha, I did a podcast with Samantha Powers once who's now at USAID, but at the time, <clears throat> you know, um, and, and she said, um, don't get overwhelmed by thinking you have to change the whole world. By investing in one woman, you are changing her world. And so whether it's the African proverb of eat the elephant one bite at a time, <clears throat> or whether it's Samantha's framing of small change is still a really incredible, powerful change, a quote unquote small change, because investing in one woman's life change um, is a phenomenal change for her and has a ripple effect out um, that's important for all of us. I, I added a donation button um, for everyone listening. Uh, on my website, More to Her Story, um, so you can donate directly to Women for Women um, and their work to support their work on the ground in Afghanistan. So, Lori, what words of encouragement and wisdom, because I know you have no shortage of those things, um, what, what words of encouragement do you have for um, young, young people uh, around the world who want to combat gender-based violence in their countries or their communities? Um, just want to be a part of this this movement. Well, one thing I'd say is, you know, um, young people are a lot of our teachers, and always have been because young people have the courage and the perspective that's new. So it's actually my 26 year old son who's been, you know, it's ironic because I'm I'm the LGBTI activist. My son is cis and straight, and he's the one that's like schooling me on, you know, trans politics and identity politics. So, um, and also on um, on some issues of power, you know, because he is a young man of color um, working in the workplace. Sometimes he's like, mom, how can you think, you know, da, 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 da. So like, well, first of all, I think we we all need to learn from each other. Mm. And people um, I have a lot to learn from. Um, so that's one thing. But secondly, I guess it's it's what I've been saying to everybody and or throughout this, this conversation, like, don't think you have to change it all. Do what you can in your space. Like you don't have to be a full-time NGO worker or a full-time activist. Like whichever career you choose, whichever space you're in, um, confronting power inequities and having the courage to point out when people are being treated badly, and doing your bit to try to make it a more equitable world. That needs to happen everywhere, and that can happen anywhere you are. And, um, but recognize that it's hard work and make sure that you have the support so that if you're gonna, you know, like my son who, who you know, worked for 
works for Blizzard, the gaming company, and you know they did a walkout because of the way that their leadership was um, acting. Well, that's a scary thing to do because you might lose your job. So you know you need to do it with other people and 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 with analysis. So, but it doesn't matter. You know, um, you know when he was considered leading leaving Blizzard because it was just so you know terrible their rape culture that they had. It's like you know make the change where you can. Like leaving Blizzard isn't going to help change Blizzard. So maybe you leave because but don't you know you can make change anywhere. So. Um, so that's one thing and um and take care of yourself and changing yourself and really understanding what's driving you in that change even as you do it um is the other thing i've been talking about and i think it applies to young people and to all of us but i um and and i guess you know change is possible another world is possible and you know we can make a difference i was really lucky in the 80s to be part of the anti-apartheid movement and apartheid was ended you know, and even though I'm disappointed, along with most other people involved in the anti-apartheid movement, where where we've ended up, particularly through Zuma's presidency, um, it's still a radical change that we made together by coming together and by small acts. I mean, what I did was a tiny little contribution, a tiny little speck that, in one way, doesn't make any difference, but together we made a radical change. And so, small change is good change, and anything you can do. Um, is important so don't give up so good your son sounds really cool as well <laughs> what a meet him. He sounds really cool. so the the last question that i that i end all of my interviews with um this podcast is called more to her story because there's more to every everybody's story um and so i want to know what what is the more to your story Lori? Well, you know, I, I heard one of your other guests say, and this is true for me too, is what's exciting for me at this moment is I don't quite know what's going to unfold next. I'm both terrified of what's happening in the world right now. I really, um, the rise of right-wing fundamentalism um, and the way it's spread. I mean, what's happening in Northern Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Mozambique, um, it, you know, we don't hear about it as much, but it's really, it's really quite terrifying, the rise of dictators and the demise of, of civic space. So on the one hand, I'm terrified about that, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm really fascinated by what's going to come next. So my own chapter, um, I mean, I still have a significant amount that I want to do with Women for Women, but my own chapter of how I grow and evolve, I, I don't know. But the other thing um, that comes to mind that I haven't talked so much about is, you know, as the mother of two adult sons, 25 and 26, I think that's how old they are. <laughs> um, like me, the role of men and, and what patriarchy has done to men is something we haven't talked about. <clears throat> My um, ex-husband was a feminist. He was reading Andrea Dworkin when I met him and he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. Um, and he ended up being really quite abusive to me and my analysis of why is partly because society would not let him be what he wanted to be. So his own mother called him, a, you know, thought he was a cuckold. My, my mother-in-law lived with us and she used to get up and do his chores. And she used to get up like really early in the morning and do his, because she was ashamed that her son was washing dishes. She was ashamed that her son was helping out in the house. She thought it brought shame onto her. And this, we were living in Senegal. So it wasn't even that it was like embarrassing in front of the neighbors. It was literally just her, her, her belief of what men were supposed to do, like brought shame on her in front of God in her mind. It wasn't about the neighbors or anything like that. And, and, and Kamal's friends, when we were living in Senegal, who are a lot of Bifal, um, which is a sort of 
Rastafarian version of Islam, um, you know, they were like, oh, you know, you got yourself a white woman, um, you know, ooh, yeah, that must be good. And, and, and like, the, like the assumptions in, of, of like what men needed to be in were so destructive. And they made fun of him for being at home and, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah. So so he wasn't allowed to be the man he wanted to be. He wasn't supported to be the man he wanted to be. And when I think about my son struggling with how everything from dating, like, are they allowed to ask women out anymore? Like, is, is like, we have to, we, we have to change patriarchy for men as much as for women. And we have to you know, we have a men's engagement program at Women for Women to that end. It's like, it focuses primarily on um, why women's rights are good for men rather than masculinity movement, um, because we are all about women for women. Like, so we measure, does our men's engagement work, work, work not by just the attitudes and behavior change in men, but do the economic outcomes for women actually change? Because that's the goal, right? Power for women. So if we do all this men's engagement and the men are happy, but the women haven't gained more power for us, like that's somebody else's work. Somebody else can do masculinity work. But I'm just saying for me personally, um, as a feminist, um, while I have a strong critique of women's rights funding, going to men's engagement programs all the time, I and mean, it, it angers me that our funders want to fund our men's engagement work more than our women's rights work. <laughs> it really does. Um, at the same time, as a mother and um, as a human being, I, I really think um, we have to change patriarchy for for men as much as for women um yeah. for my sons for everybody yeah it's it's something that i i wish that 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 our culture i mean yes like every culture but even, but i'm talking particularly about like american culture would do a better job at including including young men in these conversations and um inviting them in um, instead of ostracizing them or excluding them or and the assumptions we have i mean both of my sons are over six foot two you know, my, my younger son is a really big guy and, and he's brown, you know, he's Americans. He looks like Americans, a white Americans fear of, you know, a quote unquote terrorist. So like, as he walks through the world, the way everyone treats him as this scary, big being, yeah. he's working so hard to be sensitive and he is and feeling and open, but the way the world reacts to him every single day is assuming he's something else. Yeah. Um, and that makes it even harder to change, you know? I love that you guys have um, like a specific initiative dedicated to this men's engagement. Um, yeah. I wish that more, that more feminist organizations and organizations working for women's rights understood the, the necessity of that. Well, in Afghanistan, I mean, right now, frankly, we, we can only, luckily we have really progressive male staff, because they're the ones that had to go, to, I mean, we couldn't send any of our women's staff to go negotiate with the Taliban, it had to be the men. Okay. And what they are dedicated to ensuring that the women's staff have power in the office, right? So it's not, so even though they have to go be the representatives, they're not therefore claiming all the rights and power. Yeah. And so thank God we work with men. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be able to operate in Afghanistan right now. Totally. And I, my generation, especially and your son's generation, needs to hear this, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you so you're, much. You're, you're honestly one of like my, my role models. So I'm very, very happy that you're here. <laughs> I hope we get to meet. I, I'm sure we will. This conversation ends here, but we don't have to stop talking. 
Give us a follow on Instagram at more to her story official or submit your work at moretoherstory.org for a chance to be featured. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>